Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. What's the difference we pray between this message encourages and inspires you. And an if you would like any more information, item. check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. I, mean, I mean, I'm not saying literally take it, you know. Um, you know, I'm having treatment for my own problem with kleptomania, but when it gets really bad, I take something for it. And, um, but, but basically, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that you should take literal artworks, but I am saying how can you tell if a great artwork was a real, real thing or not? Is, how do you know that it's um, not fake? Authenticity is important. I want to talk to you today about authenticity and authority. And I want to contend that, that Jesus is the source of both and the carrier of both. Um, and so let me take you on. I'm going to take you on a bit of a teaching journey today. Is that okay? It's like, you know, three people are really happy about that. And everybody else is like, um, Christianity is based on the principle of authenticity and authority. It is based on the idea that you can actually verify this. This is not just blind faith, as Nicky Gumbel points out. This is not unreasonable faith, as C.S. Lewis points out. It's, it's faith based on reason. It's faith that has a rational core and yet it's beyond rational. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's supra-rational, actually. Merriam-Webster defines the word authentic as this, something worthy of acceptance or belief, something that conforms to or is based on fact. It points to an authentic picture of our society, something that is not fake, not false, not an imitation. Is that okay? You want, if you're going to believe in something, you want it to be true, right? Is it just me or is it like, you know, you want to, if you're going to believe in something, it needs to be true. You need to be able to verify it. And, and also Webster's defines authority as the power to influence or command thought, opinion or behaviour. For example, the, the Premier's new authority and, and we have a new Premier and, and you need to be praying for, you know, whoever leads our government. And, and so we have this this you know, authority that they have. It is a, a, a designated, delegated authority. It's delegated actually by the people. It's under, you know, a state governor and it's under a, a system of, of um, the Westminster, you know, system, if you like. And, and, um, and there's an authority and a structure to it. Authority also relates to the idea of freedom. There is a freedom that, that somebody gives in authority. They, they provide you with freedom, if you like. And authority speaks of command. So when we say the, that the Bible has authority or we say that the Bible is authentic, what we're saying is that it's verifiable, it's fact-based, it's true, and it's objectively you know, um, not fake. It's objectively real. Why is that important? Because you live in an era of the greatest truth decay in, in all of human existence that we've experienced. So, so the moment we say that truth is relative, that truth is somehow whatever you think that's your truth, 
and that's your vibe, that's your belief, that's your, you know, you, you do you and I'll do me and, and, and we'll just be free to be completely ourselves and we'll all be happy unless you happen to disagree with my belief, in which case I will have you struck off and cancelled. Oh no, someone disagreed with me. I can't I had this problem with my mother. She disagreed with me all the time. And it's like she had no sensitivity to my emotional need. You cannot have any truth at all if there is not an absolute truth that undergirds it. It's, it's a rational impossibility. So if, if you have any truth, that even, it's even your truth, your subjective truth, your relative truth, I promise you, you can't retain that. It cannot make any sense unless somewhere there is an absolute truth that undergirds it. Let me give you a case in point. Who thinks it's warm today? Who thinks it's warmer last week than it is today? Now, that's relative. That's a relative measure, right? Warmth is subjective. It's kind of, you know, you've got this, this scale under which you, you measure the variances, the relative transitions of heat and cold. But let me ask you this. Is there an objective value that undergirds that idea? Oh, no, it's just all relative. It's like where there's a will, there's a relative, and where there's, like, you know, there's temperature, there's, there's a relative slide. No, no, you're missing the point. There is something called absolute cold. Does cold exist? No. Cold is not a thing. Cold is the absence of a thing. Just like darkness is not a thing. Darkness is the absence of light, which is why I'm always surprised when Christians spend an awful lot of time fighting against darkness when all they have to do is really turn the light on. We we actually have to learn to just turn the lights on and and act like someone's home because they are. And and so we, we have this process of... Of, with the temperature gauge, we go, well, well, there is minus 276 degrees Kelvin is like absolute cold. And, and it is a point where there is no, you can't get any colder. It's an absolute, actually, mathematically in physics. And so we, we understand that, that because of that, that's a verifiable reality. At, in, in, in minus 276 degrees Kelvin, as a point of cold, there is no thermal energy present whatsoever. It's completely cold. It's absolutely cold, not relatively cold. (laughs) You felt relatively cold and will feel colder still next week. But, But that's a relative experience. Underneath that, there is an absolute. The temperature gauge is a measure of the relatives but the idea of heat and cold are absolutes. Similarly, the idea of a moral worldview, the idea of a spiritual uh, encounter, the idea of, of um, that there is a God who, who supervenes the universe and speaks it into existence by his breath, that is a verifiable reality. Why? Because you're here. You exist. You are living testimony of the existence of God. You didn't wake up this morning and look in the mirror and go, 
Ah, the glory of God. Really. Did, actually, did anyone do that this morning? Other than Loic? Um, <laughs> you did, and yet, you are. You are the glory of God. Oh, I don't think so. Yes, you are. You, you, you actually are a reflection in a finite way of the infinite beauty and wisdom and clarity and purpose and design and, and genius of a creative God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are designed with purpose in mind. You are just like, you, you are such a miracle. You have no idea. I mean, the fact that your siblings allowed you to live even is a miracle. Why am I saying all this? Because I want you to understand that there is an authenticity and an authority to the gospel. And, and inherent in that is that you either have to accept that Jesus is who he says he was, or he's a liar, a fraud, or a lunatic. Right? C.S. Lewis makes that really clear to us. You, you don't have many options here. Either Jesus is Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a loony. Right? You can't get past that thought. Because we, we have an undeniable reality, which is what Jesus said about himself and then what the, what the disciples said about him. So let's check it out. So let me jump into Scripture here. Perhaps one of the most obvious texts that shows the authority and authenticity is clearly found in this one. Anyone who listens to my teaching, Matthew 7 Anyone who listens to my teaching, Jesus says, and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the, the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching. He taught with real authority. Not, un, not quite unlike the teachers of religious law. And so, we, <laughs> so as, a, as an agnostic university student, I was the, you know, the sceptical, obnoxious evolutionist who would argue with Christians, right? Um, and I was shocked to find that occasionally a Christian would actually tell me the truth and, and confront my ignorance. Um, and, and I'm grateful, actually, for that now. Can I say, though, some of those conversations were very uncomfortable for both them and me, right? I'm saying that to say this to you. Some of you are withholding your salvation story because you don't want to offend. Can you stop doing that? The gospel does offend, but sometimes it offends people back to sanity. <laughs> Sorry. Just, you know, I would love to think that, that having a change of premier was going to make everything right in New South Wales, but I promise you it is not. There is, no spirit, there is no political solution to a spiritual problem. And you and I have to start with the spiritual problem first. The spiritual problem is that we are by nature rebellious and self-centred and anti-God at times. And so we have this, this outreach from God where God literally comes and offends our thinking enough to make us change. 
Is this okay? I'm sorry. I was like, you know, this is prophetic, by the way, in case you go, oh, I thought he was going to prophesy. I am prophesying. I'm reminding you of the importance of your faith. I'm reminding you of the importance of your salvation story. I'm reminding you that you have an obligation to share your story while there's still time. I mean, atheism believes in the miraculous, by the way. I don't know if you knew this, but atheism, I, like I have a lot of atheist friends and we have interesting discussions at times. And, and four miracles that atheism performs. One is that atheists believe that you can get something from nothing. Atheists believe that you can get life from non-life. Atheists believe you can get order from chaos. And atheists believe that you can get the immaterial from physical matter. So they, they have great faith. They live by faith. They, it's like, you know, and as Nikki Gumbel is saying, the difference between science and faith, science is important because it deals with scientific questions, but equally faith is important because it answers some very fundamental questions about life. Everyone has faith. An atheist has faith there is no God, but you can't prove that mathematically or scientifically. All of us who believe in Jesus also do so on the basis of evidence. We're going to celebrate Easter in a couple of weeks. And, and what is the greatest evidence of Easter? Well, there's an empty tomb. And without stealing the thunder of Resurrection Sunday, I just want to remind you the tomb is empty and that creates a major conundrum because he is not there. And who, when you start to plot who, who stole the body, if you're not sure about that, can I recommend you read the book The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, a converted atheist who was so convicted by the story of the empty tomb that it literally stirred him into faith. The tomb is empty. It's unavoidable historical reality. So that makes you have to wrestle with, well, what do I believe? So I mentioned in the previous service, my wife's a history teacher and she was teaching at our kids' school. All of our kids went to this state school nearby and... Um, and Unlike me, they managed to get through it without being expelled. And, um, and so they, in year 10, my son, who is our youngest and um, the most miraculous of all of our children, um, he, he, um, he went to school and his history teacher said, you've got to do an essay on an historical figure. And so he said, well, I want to do it about Jesus. And the history teacher stood up in front of the class and said, well, you can't because we're only allowed to do real historical figures. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> what an idiot. <laughs> There's such a thing as educated idiots. And, and the thing is that if he'd really studied history, especially ancient history, he would know that if you're going to believe in anything from ancient history, you're going to have to believe in the veracity of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is more verifiable in documentary evidence than any other ancient historical figure by far, by, by hundreds of times. More than Julius Caesar, more than Alexander the Great, more than the pharaohs, more than anybody else, you have, you have unmistakable documentary proof that Jesus not only existed, but also what he said. We actually, we, we can verify the records of what the gospel says. Why? Because we have other historical sources that, that agree with his testimony that are dated back to the same century. So 
And they weren't even Christian. They weren't people that believed in Jesus necessarily as the Saviour, but they certainly verified his existence. Why is that important? Because there's so much nonsense in the world. People make all these outlandish claims like the, like the, sorry, I'll tone my language down. The, um, the esteemed theologian Barbara Thiering, who's an Australian, by the way, who, who, who wants to make a name for herself in theology, so she writes this incredible thing about how Jesus did no miracles. Jesus was, was, you know, this mythological sort of character and the church made up all the miracles and the church made up all the stuff about the resurrection. Actually, Jesus, you know, just lived and he was a, you know, a, a prophety sort of guy. And, and then he, he uh, married Mary Magdalene, had many children, and then they, you know, they lived somewhere else. And, and, and uh, you know, and that was the end of the story. And then the church made up all the rest, right? So she says, for example, <laughs> that when Jesus walked on the water, well, obviously he didn't really walk on the water because that's obviously impossible. So, so he must have walked on a pier, <laughs> right? Just a submerged pier in the Sea of Galilee. It was like this, this pier that sort of appeared. It's like, well, as an appear, a pier would appear, so it makes sense. And, and so anyway, he walked on this pier and a better educated theologian pointed out the hilarity of that because Jesus, Jesus might have walked on that pier, but Peter sank through it. Anyway, <clears throat> so let's ask ourselves four real quick questions. What did the disciples say about Jesus? Let me read this to you from Matthew 15. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? What a great question. And I want to ask you that too. Who do you say he is? Who do you say I am, he says. And Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And here we are 2,000 years later as living proof that what Jesus prophesied has come to pass. All the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's authority. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. To put things plainly, this question is amongst the most important questions any person can ever ask of themselves. What did Jesus say to us? Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? And, and, you know, my wife has this little note in her Bible that says this, let's love Jesus publicly. Why? Because your story about Jesus matters. And your story is one of the things that God most wants to use to transform somebody else's world. And you don't have to be weird about it and you have to ask God for timing. But yes, there's a time to speak. There's a time when silence is no longer golden. 
There's a time when, when you and I have to be prepared to share our story so that others will know. I'm so grateful to those who had the courage to challenge me with the gospel. Every one of us must one day declare who we believe Jesus Christ to be. C.S. Lewis says this, look for yourself and you'll find loneliness and despair. But if you look for Christ, you'll find him and everything else. Everything else you want in life, you find through him. Does this make sense? That's why we want to get back very carefully to the centrality of Jesus is. He is our authenticity. He is our authority. He he continues this. C.S. Lewis says, idols... False gods always break the hearts of their worshippers. I have this picture in my, um, in my notes somewhere of uh, people carrying, it's a Hindu deity, they're carrying their god into the Ganges River. And that's not to mock the Hindu faith, but, but simply to say this, I don't want a God I have to carry around. I want a God who can carry me. Does that make sense? When I became a Christian, my, my atheist friends, my rugby mates, said to me, how long is this phase going to go on? They said, we don't mind you becoming a Christian as long as you don't stop smoking drugs. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, I don't think that's going to happen. And then they said, What's this Bible college thing you're doing? Like, what is that? You'd like, it's a book. You can read it in a week. Like, seriously, how, why do you have to study it for so long? And I said to them, I will study this book all my life and still not have scratched the surface of what it contains. And they're like, yeah, right. Well, recently I caught up with a bunch of them and they said to me, I said to them, hey, this Christian phase is still going. <laughs> 40 years later, this phase just, 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 I'm starting to wean out it. No, I'm not. And you know what? My mates are still just as empty as they were then. They still have no clue why they're alive. They're 61 and they're clueless. That really ticks me off. And you know what happens? Every time there's a funeral, they ring me and go, hey, Robbo. Can you come and do this funeral? I go, no, it's too late. You should have rung me before and I would have led them to Jesus. <laughs> One more C.S. Lewis thing. He says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Hectic, isn't it? So what did Jesus say about himself? Well, (laughs) Nicky Gumbel says, what did Jesus say about himself? The first bit of evidence here is that Jesus' teaching was centred on himself. Jesus actually talked a lot about himself. Why? Why? Because he had to point the world to him, not because he wasn't humble. He was humble, but he he still had to point the world to him. 
and yet he still also deferred to the Father. Great religious teachers point away from themselves. They point to something else. They say, don't look at me, look at God. But Jesus, who personifies humility, said, look at me, come to me. Now, he doesn't do that unless he's got something to genuinely offer. Or he's, as I say, he's he's a narcissistic loony. So you have this fundamental question of ultimate meaning and purpose. What's my life about? What am I here for? Why am I here? What's my origin? What's my meaning? What's my morality? What's my destiny? Those questions resonate through the soul of every human. To be alive is to wrestle with those questions. Can I say this? The very fact that those questions exist in your soul, in your thought process, is conclusive evidence that there is a solution to them. It's like if you have a hunger for a mango, which I often do, it's conclusive evidence that a mango exists and must be eaten, right? Adam and Eve shouldn't have eaten the mango, but they did. There is this spiritual hunger that we have. Well, Jesus responds to that by saying, I'm the bread of life. In fact, as I mentioned in the previous service, the I am statements Jesus makes are an incredible definer of who Jesus thinks he is. He takes the phrase, I am that I am, that was given by God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 as revelation of, of the identity of God. This is my name. I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. The ever-present help, the everlasting Father. And so Jesus appropriates, I love that word, he appropriates that term for himself. He goes, I am the bread of life, I am the water of life, I am the good shepherd, I am, I am, I am. He says, I and the Father are one being, he says in John. And then (laughs) Then in John 14, he says, he's having a chat around the table before he's about to be crucified and he's saying to his disciples, "Um, it's to your advantage that I go away. And, And the disciples say to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. (laughs) And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you? So long and you do not know me? Do you not understand that the one who has seen me has seen the Father? Oh, really? Well, you don't look like God, like you just look like an average bloke. He says, I and the Father are one essence. He says in John 10, I only do what I see the Father doing. He says, again in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. And then he says, Philip, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow. Talk about appropriation. You can't say that unless you either have delusions of grandeur or you are who you said you are. So when he says that, he's not only claiming the name of God, which, you know, but he's also saying, if you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. Wow. 
one of the ways we know that he had authority to do that, and this is a sidetrack, sorry, Michael, but in Mark chapter 2, I think it is, you have this amazing encounter. These guys bring their paralytic mate on a stretcher and they pull the roof off where Jesus is staying in Capernaum and they, they literally lower this guy through the roof right at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says the craziest thing to a Jewish hearer, this is insane. He doesn't say, oh, this poor guy, let's pray for him or do something. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, what do the Pharisees do? What? No one can forgive sins but God alone. Oh, no. And they're freaking out. He goes, oh, okay. (laughs) Well, just so you know, I have authority to forgive. Get up and walk. Why am I telling you that? I want to remind you that the God who walks with you is the one who enables you to walk at all. He's the one who has literally hardwired your body. He's, 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 in him you live and move and exist, Acts 17 says. You, you, you don't even exist. You don't even breathe without his presence. If you're still breathing this morning, it's because God's purpose is still unfolding in your life and he still has a plan for you. He still has a purpose to unfold. He still has a prophetic thing on you to do, something that you must do. And if you do not do, it will not be done. Jesus deals with the fundamental thing first. What was more important? The healing of the paralytic? Well, that's important, but you know what? He's going to die again. A bit like Lazarus. Lazarus, you know, gets resurrected in John 11 and, you know, he's shortly after the Jews are trying to kill him and eventually he dies again. Jesus' resurrection was different. Jesus was a once and for all resurrection so that everybody who follows him will have the same once and for all resurrection. That's authenticity and authority. Jesus deals with the sin problem first. Why? I said earlier that you can't solve a spiritual problem with a political solution. But you can't solve it with anything else but a spiritual solution. You can only overcome sin by his gracious gift of salvation. If you're not sure about that, just read Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of we were dead in our sins and transgressions which we had committed. And and then in verse 4 of chapter 2, it says this amazing thing. It says, but God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he rescued us, from, transferred us from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of light. And then it says, for by grace you have been saved and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Why am I saying all that? Because I'm, I'm stirring up in your heart the gospel itself. This is my prophetic word. Revelation 19 says the testimony about Jesus, your story, 
is the spirit of prophecy. Your story matters. And there are people waiting to hear it. Can I say this? This world is in the worst truth decay ever. They have no clue why they're here, what their purpose is. And you of all people know the answer to that. You may not know it perfectly, but I promise you, you have a much better picture than the rest of the world does. Because of everybody, you've discovered that that God is love, that God has placed inestimable value on you, that He's literally breathed into you His breath, His life. He's given you His Spirit. He's given you His Son. He's given you life eternal. He's given you forgiveness and salvation and hope and sanctification and, and the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. And He abides with you. He walks with you. He lives in you. He's, he's upon you. He's empowering you. He's fulfilling you. He's destined you for a great purpose. And He actually likes you which is a rarity. (laughs) He's for you, not against you. Do you really think God has gone to such extreme lengths like the cross to rescue you only to be angry at you now? The Apostle Paul who of all people should have felt like God was angry at him, especially after he murdered some of Jesus' own followers. The Apostle Paul continues in Ephesians 2 by saying this, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He created beforehand that we should walk in them. The literal Greek word there in in verse 10 literally says this, for you are God's masterpiece. I said earlier, none of you woke up this morning, looked in the mirror and thought, glory of God. None of you thought masterpiece. But now I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, you are God's masterpiece. Come on, do it. Even if you find them annoying. Musos, you can come back. <clears throat> My time's done and, and I... There's so much more I'd like to say about this particular topic. But really, what I've sought to do this morning is to stir up your sincere hearts by way of reminder. And if there's something I want you to take away from this morning, you're going to find it in Philippians chapter 2. Maybe, Michael, you can find that passage from verse 5. It's not in my notes, but I I just want to draw your attention to this passage of Scripture because it is a descriptor of what I think God is saying to you about your life. How do I live as a result of what I believe? How does Jesus' authenticity and authority change me? Well, the Apostle Paul, who calls himself the foremost of all sinners, then teaches us this passage. 
which became a creed for the early church, by the way. It became something that they would recite. And it, it, it basically is a very powerful statement. Let me read it to you. It basically says this, have this attitude in yourselves. Another word of way of phrasing that, have this mind, have this way of thinking within yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. And it's pause there. Who did regard equality with God as something to be grasped? Well, I can tell you the devil did. The devil thought he should be like God. I mean, not just the devil. We did too. Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve did. They, they thought, we, I will be like God, knowing good and evil. We thought we could grasp it. Jesus, who is God, chooses not to do that. He does the exact opposite to the way the world is. Although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or stolen or grabbed for Himself, but rather emptied Himself, taking on the form of a bondservant or a slave, actually. And being made in the likeness of sinful humanity, He emptied Himself to the point of death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted Him, bestowing upon Him the name which is above every other name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do I want you to take away? Grace, faith, sense of authority that you carry and a recognition that you can do this. You can have that same attitude Jesus had. For some of you, you encounter all sorts of stuff gets thrown at you. And I, I want you to be like the duck. Literally let, the, let it just slide off like water off a duck's back. The accusations of the enemy are just that. They have no power or right to access your soul. No one makes you feel inferior without your agreement. So do not allow the lies of the enemy to rob you of your identity and your calling. Okay? Your security is not in human reasoning, human opinions. I don't know who that's for, but I sense there's some people in this room, you've been through, you've, you've heard a lot of negative words. But I want to say over you this one word, God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is perfected in your weakness. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.